0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back and to share fellowship and uh, see uh, more faces joining us uh, from uh, the the community and from our friends. We have been looking at the Psalms of David, for those of you who have uh, not been able to follow it so far, and we have uh, looked at the ones particularly that uh, are are historically linked to events in David's life. And uh, we have now arrived at Psalm 51, I don't know if you've got a favorite psalm. Many like psalms like Psalm 23. And in our house group, when we ran a series in the Psalms, it was lovely to hear the meaningful psalms and reflections that many enjoyed. Nobody mentioned Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a difficult, in some ways, psalm to read because it is a psalm of a man who has broken his life. A psalm of a man whose trajectory in life went up and up and up. Most of the historical psalms were during that period of struggle, running away from King Saul. And his life reached the zenith when he became the king. And just at that moment, he stepped down from his responsibilities. He should have been with his army in Rabbah. He wasn't. He was staying at home in the comfort and luxury while the men were gone from Zion. And that's when he stumbled, and the trajectory starts to fall down and into misery, as that excellent presentation that the, the uh, Bible Project put before us. So I'm going to walk through psalm, 30, uh, psalm 51 and look at it carefully. This psalm is a challenge to us all. And if you haven't prayed this psalm personally at home, then there's something wrong with your Christian life. Because this psalm is one that we need to be praying often because we suddenly think like King David, I'm a Christian, I've been around a few years, I've, I've learned a few things, I've got friends in church, I sing in the group or I sing uh, uh, with the fellowship and I, I, I enjoy uh, leadership or whatever I do in a house group, I'm mid. And we forget we are vulnerable, broken people. It is a broken life we lead that constantly needs to confess and come to God. And so this is what some of the things we'll learn. But let me walk you through the structure of the psalm. And it's good to follow the structures of these psalms. And please pick up the the book in the pew to follow through this psalm. If you take the psalm as it stands, you can break it up into six little sections or stanzas. And each of these takes a look uh, at follows through David's prayer And David's prayer is very powerful. The first thing he says in verses 1 and 2 is, I recognize I've done wrong. That's the start. It's a start for anybody who needs or wants to become a Christian. We recognize we've done wrong. He then goes on to follow that with repentance, turning deliberately from that wrong, and that leads to restoration and assurance with God. And you could say that for many people, this is how they came to Christ, their conversion. But it's not just a one-off thing at the start of Christian life. Too often we find in our journeys along the Christian life, we stumble and fall. And we need to go back through the experience of recognition that we're still sinners. We need continually to repent and need to continually go back for restoration. I'm conscious that in this church, there are many who, like me, haven't enjoyed the beautiful life as we should. We've made mistakes, divorce, family broken up, children I can only see at the weekends. And I know there are many of you who share some similar circumstances to that. But maybe you haven't had that, and thankfully I hope you haven't, but you've had other things that are in that life. And every one of us needs to take to heart that we've got to go through this process continually and repeatedly if we seek to be servants malleable in God's hand. Because this then leads in this psalm to what we all look forward to, transformation, that God then renews our spirits, that he res- that, that brings restitution, the, 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 the things that have gone wrong, the chance to make up. And then ultimately... The glory of revival in the church, in the individual life. And that follows the process of this psalm. So if you walk through the psalm with me, I think you'll find it. Now, I don't know if, like me, you take your Bible and you write in it. And if you don't, do. Get a big plan, Get colored pencils. Underline words. And uh, if you've got one of these modern electronic devices, which I use a lot, there's highlighters in there. That way you pick out keywords, And what I'm going to do is pick key words from this passage and show how they relate to David, but also to us. But above all, tell us an awful lot about God and his love, his care, his mercy for us. And the first thing that David did in these first two verses is very interesting. There's three, three threes in here. The first thing he recognized when uh, Nathan pointed the finger and said, "You are the man that is guilty." He said, "I have sinned." And so he highlights the fact, "Have mercy on me, God, blot out my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin." What is sin? Well, the Bible makes it clear that sin is missing the mark. Think of a Bowman shooting, misses the target or a rifleman trying to aim at a target and misses it. And in the book of Romans, Paul reminds us, all have sinned and fall short. In other words, it's perfection that God expects, and we fall short of it. There's not one person in this room, in this city, in this country, who hasn't sinned. All have sinned. It's falling short of God's perfect standards. But it's also described as transgressions. What are transgressions? You transgress the road when you cross it. In other words, transgression means cutting across the, 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 the things that God has laid out. The word in the, uh, uh, in the Lord's Prayer is, forgive us our trespasses. Trespassing means you're going somewhere you shouldn't be, breaking God's law. And that is deliberately crossing the line. And he knows he's transgressed here. He's broken the, the Ten Commandments. But then it also says he wants to be washed from his iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is deviation from the correct path. If you have ever watched or played bowls, they give you a dirty big ball that's quite heavy, and when you throw it, it's cheating because it wants to veer off from the way you wanted it to go. Why? Why? In the center of a bowling ball is a big lump of lead, but it's not in the center, it's off-center deliberately. So when you throw it, it veers off the true course. That is iniquity. Our hearts are wicked and desperately wicked above all things. They veer off, said the prophet Jeremiah. There's an inner bias that pulls us away from the truth. And that's what David recognized. But then he recognized three things about God. He said this, God, have mercy. Why did he ask for mercy? He knew he was guilty. What is the punishment in the Old Testament for murder? Death. What is the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? Death by stoning. He knew he was guilty. There was no other way out. So he claimed and pleaded to God's mercy. Mercy is where you deserve punishment. There's no merit. There's no basis for any pardon or forgiveness. You throw yourself in God's mercy. Mercy is where you don't get what you do deserve. But then he appeals to God's love, not just God's nice fella, I like you and you're a good guy. No, no, it's his unfailing love. It's his covenant love that he promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all his descendants and they don't deserve it. And the New Testament word for this love is an amazing word. It is grace. The Old Testament word "hesed" means it's God's covenant love, but the New Testament means it's grace. Grace is where you do get what you don't deserve. Mercy is where you don't get what you do deserve. And both these are picked out. And the other basis he used is God's heart of compassion, his tender warmth. This is a real visceral word in the Old Testament. Breaking heart as Jesus' heart broke and compassion for the people who were lost like sheep without a shepherd. So he starts with these. But then the third thing he looks at in his, these verses, if you highlight them you'll see, what does he need? He needs his transgressions blotted I don't know if you've got a cat like mine that likes being sick on your nice brand new carpets. And you can clean, clean bits away, but then you need to get this vanished stuff and spray it. And then you get the, 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 the sort of cloths and, and the little bits of paper, and you have to completely blot it out as best you can. They say that uh, forensic science, that if someone is killed or murdered, there will always be a speck of blood around that can be found. David was crying, blot the whole lot out. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus did just that. He forgave our trespasses by erasing the record that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Jesus can blot every speck of sin out. And he asked, David asked that God would do that. He asked God to wash away his iniquity. Jesus says in the New Testament, has washed us. That's why we have baptism in this church. The immersion of baptism shows that you're washed completely from your sins and is where you rise up from the water as if rising from the dead, completely cleaned. And it's a picture of what Jesus does to those who come to him. And so his cleansing, that the blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse him from his sin, is the same offer to us. He recognized these things, his own sinfulness, His own, the the character of God, and he came and said, Help. In fact, he said, I repent. I acknowledge my transgressions. A few weeks ago, I, I illustrated how the word repent is a military word. It means about turn, swing back the other way. And that is what David did in the light of the knowledge of all that had happened in his sin. And The Bible encourages us to do the same, to confess our sins, to acknowledge our sins, not just once forever, yes, that's true, but to continue to keep a short account with God and to bring our daily transgressions to him and ask for continuing cleansing. And it's very interesting that uh, David looks at this and he says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Well, I'm not sure that adultery with someone or against murder is is a minor thing, but the difference here is between crime and sin. Crime is where we commit offenses against each other, but sin is where we offend God. Now, it's true that if we commit offenses against each other, we are breaking what God has said to love our neighbor as ourselves. But had David a clear vision of God, he wouldn't have led to those wicked acts that he took. And so all sin is against God, and that is the real offense and judgment. Indeed, uh, David uh, looks back and he points out that sinful all his life is, uh, he was sinful at birth, he says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and sin is always before me. And that reminds us that we are sinners by birth, by our very nature, genetics as it were, and by practice. And so he repents from all these, as we must too, for anything that's in our hearts. But it leads on to a restoration, a cry for restoration. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. And this reminds us of what Jesus told Nicodemus, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How does God deal with our repentance? Why, he brings us new birth. We are born again, born of God. And it then asks that he be cleansed with hyssop. Hyssop is a plant which they used to dip into the blood of the sacrifices and then wave it in front of the sinner or sprinkle the sinner with it. Though so we too have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, which cleanses us from all sin. That is the basis for our restoration. God can do it because Jesus has done it, has died on the cross, has shed his blood, sprinkled those who come to him, and given new birth. So that is basically the position that David brought, was brought to and repented of. How does he move on in this prayer? And that's quite important. Where does it go next? What's the transformation? Again, I've put my little highlighter in, and I hope you can pick out the obvious words. What is the transformation in the Christian believer that allows them to get on and get up and live a new life full of power? And the answer is this in verse 10. Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't take away from me your Holy Spirit, in verse 11. And verse 12, grant me a willing spirit. What is this saying here? You can live it, not on your own, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Who I will give, he's saying. That is the basis for David's renewal. It's the basis for our renewal. My father uh, was an electrician and um, obviously knew how to look after things and fix the odd thing that would break. Uh, but he was a real fan of steam engines and he joined the Railway Preservation Society of Ireland and would then go down to Whitehead every weekend or so often and try and fix steam engines. And uh, then he would go off on train journeys all over the island and he used to tell me about the power of steam. And I said to him one day, that's, that's amazing. That, that's the most powerful thing there is. I said, I'm sure that they're more powerful, the Mallard and all those, than all these new modern electric railways that we have got. He laughed. And he said, no, no, you don't get it. A steam engine is full of the coal and fire to, to, to take itself from A to B. But he said, with electric trains... As soon as they put the pantograph up, it touches the wires. And behind those wires, you have the entire power of the national grid. All the electricity is available if it need be. And when you become a Christian believer, you don't need a little steam engine to keep you chugging along. No, you connect through the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the power of the the national grid of God, if I could use those terms. He gives the power to live and to be renewed. And that power can take us to share with others. And the Holy Spirit, we discover, is the one who will guide us, testify, and glorify Jesus in us. The thing the Holy Spirit genuinely does with us is focus on Jesus and creates Jesus in us and then testifies so that we can share Him with others. Moving on in the Psalm, David then asks for deliverance from the guilt of bloodshed. Now, in the Old Testament, when they put the sacrifices together, as you read in the book of Leviticus, many of the sacrifices were for things that people had done wrong, and they were advised that as part of the sacrifice, they had to go out and make it up with the person they offended, make restitution. And they had to pay back something they had stolen, perhaps. You know the story of Zacchaeus in the tree. When he came down, he said, Lord, I'll give four times what I stole. The law only required him to give twice. I'll give four times. Genuine restitution. But there's no restitution for the sin that David committed. It says in verse 16, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give you one. What would he mean? Well, if you stole, you could have a sacrifice in the temple. The lamb would die, whatever, and you'd go and make restitution. But for murder and for adultery, there were no sacrifices. There was no way you could go into the temple and say, sorry, I murdered somebody. Can I have a sacrifice? They would say, no, there's the hangman's tree. Because that is the only solution. David knew that. But yet, he had to make restitution. And what is the sacrifice that God genuinely expects? A broken and contrite heart. A chap called Roy Hessian, uh, who was a great founder of many movements in Wales. And one of the spin offs was uh, the uh, Shepherd's Fold, uh, whose name in Welsh uh, Faldi Brennan. Uh, but there were many, fo- uh, many, fo- uh, many uh, follow ons from that. But he wrote a book called The Calvary Road and pointed out that you walk that road with a broken and contrite heart, not an, a selfish looking up and pride. And that is the mood that David came to. And he was, uh, he was uh, in a sense, looking at the consequences of sin. And before anyone becomes a Christian, we strongly encourage people to think, count the cost. No man puts his hand to the ply, and looking back is fit, the kingdom of God. You want to be his disciple, it says, deny yourself, take up the cross daily and follow Jesus. That is the, the challenge. There are consequences and for King David there certainly were consequences. We, dis- we, we discovered in the film of the, or the, the video there that uh, his, five of his children ended up, several murdering each other and others Uh, raping and uh, destroying uh, the lives of their sister. It was a terrible consequence that followed on from David's life. Eventually, his grandson lost the kingdom. Nine-tenths of it went elsewhere. Let me bring you up with a more modern instance of how believers need to face up the consequences. Anyone know who this is, incidentally? That's Jonathan Aitken, who was the Minister for Defence Procurement in John Major's government and then became the uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. But as a defence minister, he cheated, he got sponsorship, he, he, he took a bribe, basically. And then the papers heard about it and they started challenging him and asking for his resignation. Instead of owning up to it, he took the papers to court and said they were lying and he tried to pull all sorts of deceit against it. And this continued through the period he was in office, up to 1997, when uh, he eventually, through some of these sins catching up on him, he had to resign his position. In 1997, some of you may well remember, that was the year Tony Blair came to power and destroyed hundreds and hundreds of conservative seats, including Jonathan Aitken's seat. In 1997, Jonathan Aitken lost his employment and his position. And he went along to a church called Holy Trinity Brompton, which was where the Alpha Course was started, and he attended an Alpha Course. And then he got more interested. And he, through that and through the contacts with the people there, came to Christ. And as he was going through his uh, uh, finished his, finishing his career, obviously, and as he was going through his life, he realized he had lied, deceived, and sinned, and that he had to own up to it. And so in 1970, ni- uh, um, uh, uh, let me get this right, let me get this right, <laughs> 1999, uh, he um, uh, went to the judges and owned up to everything, and they... Put him in prison and give him a sentence of 18 months prison for the things that he had done, deceiving and lying and receiving, as it were, bribes in office. During that period, he studied the Bible, he studied Greek, and when he was released after seven months, he then went back to his old university at Oxford and trained to become a minister, which he did. And he then set up a mighty ministry in churches, in in prisons, of running alpha courses and meeting people in in, in, uh, prison and encouraging them to come to Christ. He owned up to the consequences. And just because you may have become a Christian doesn't mean you should not face the consequences. One needs to be honest. And if there's a judgment, so be it. But his ministry changed. His life changed remarkably. And from being a journalist that wrote all sorts of gossip, he became a Christian writer and minister and still is to this day. There are consequences, and sometimes we need to face up to them. But the beauty is this. If we do come humbly in on God, he will once again, as this prayer completes, build up the walls of the church of Zion. He will once again build up service and sacrifice. And the thing is this, the Bible says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What does this mean? It means that if God changes your heart, he then starts to change the church. But if you don't let him change you, then the church isn't being changed. And judgment begins with us, the church, Why is there no revival in England today? Why is there no revival in Amesbury today? Because there's no revival, perhaps, in the churches of Amesbury in our hearts. Because we're rejecting God's call to a broken and contrite approach and heart to Him and this community. That is where revival begins, when God's people turn direct to Him And allow him through his power of his Holy Spirit to change and modify and correct. But we need that broken heart, that broken walk.